Good morning, church. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. Not many of were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tanika. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you today. My name's Evan, and my wife, Sandy, and I, and there's Persley's there, uh, we are part of a, a team that leads this church. It's our joy to lead this church as we step into our third year together. It's been amazing to see all God has done. And here we are at the beginning of our third year, and we are walking through 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to this ancient church in the city of Corinth, okay? Paul writes this letter. We're just going to get right into it. He writes this letter to address problems uh, and, and division that was going on in this church. We saw back in verse 10, this was the first problem he mentioned. The church was fighting. The church was dividing and factioning off into tribes, and, and they were dividing over celebrity and status and rallying around personalities and forming personality cults. And, and they're rallying around what Paul calls worldly wisdom, okay? It's secular values that were creeping into the church and shaping church values, um, which was causing God's family to fight. And Paul's like, I beg you guys, in the name of Jesus, you would be united, not divided. That you would all agree on what the gospel is. There's all kinds of stuff we can disagree on. And if we agree on what the content of the gospel is, that the God-man has come, and through his cross and resurrection, we are united and becoming new by the power of the Spirit. If we agree to that, and we submit to Jesus' authority and goodness together, then God can work through us. He can show off how good he is to the world. So, so as an antidote to this disease of division, Paul points to the nonsense of the gospel. That's the antidote. He calls it the nonsense of the gospel. And it's in these three exhibits. So it's in these three texts. Exhibit A is the cross, okay? And we saw, last week, we saw that one. We looked at the cross all day. And as followers of Jesus, our shared life is defined by an oxymoron, <laughs> a crucified and shamed king of the universe. It's this oxymoron that shapes us. Because for 2,000 years, Christians have united around this confession that God is ultimately revealing himself through this nonsense. God is revealing himself through the crucified and risen Jesus. As Jesus followers, we believe we cannot save ourselves. We need forgiveness and healing from somewhere else to come to us, and that grates against our arrogant humanism, doesn't it? This is why the cross is nonsense and offensive from the world's perspective, but as we admit our need for his forgiveness and healing, that same cross becomes a power source for our transformation. 
And so we unify around it. We become the unified family. Just like Tanika sang, the diverse yet unified family. This gospel cuts across all the normal boundary lines and all the normal ways humans divide up. And it unifies a diverse family around Jesus. And that's us. So that's exhibit B, the church. So the cross gives birth to this church. And so Paul moves his conversation to talk about how crazy and nonsensical we are, (laughs) how crazy the church is. So verse 26, let's look at it. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, he says. Okay, right out of the gate, he invites the church to do some self-reflection. He's like, okay, you guys, are you really going to divide over status? Because do you remember who you were? Do you remember where you came from? I mean, think about who you were when God chose you and forgave and healed and brought you into his family. So Paul brings them like down to earth. He brings their feet back down to the ground. And he's like, hey, you guys, when you were called, most of you were not big shot PhDs or well-connected influencers or high-born people. That's that last part. Not many of you have noble birth. That Greek word is high-born, born into privilege. Not many of you were there. He's talking to this group. And, and, and that's who he's talking to, okay? So according to historians, this church in Corinth was probably about 50 or 60 people in a room. We think of like one of the early churches that gets a letter in the Bible written to them. Like you think of this giant awesome, but there are probably 50 or 60 people in, uh, in this city. And it's estimated that only about 10% of them were wealthy influencers. So maybe five or six people. And a lot of them are named in the letter. Um, the majority of this church were probably freedmen and freedwomen, these ex-slaves who now have like a shot on life and can start climbing the ladder and they're pumped about it. And so they move into this big city to try to climb up, get rich, and make a name for themselves. Because the city of Corinth was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. They even had their own coin that you had to use if you were gonna do business in the city. So if you brought in coin from outside, you had to like get it exchanged, which they charged a crazy rate for. They knew what they were doing, okay? The city was very well known for its wealth. Success in Corinth was defined by wealth, but not just wealth, but by where you were born and your influence and your network and your class and your upward mobility, okay? And that definition is creeping into the church. They're starting to think of one another by these same standards. And so this is where it comes home for us in San Diego, I think. Because in San Diego, as Christians in 2020, this is a moment for us because uh, as For a long time in America, class, when you think of upper class, what are we talking about? Money. Like most of the time in America, right? When we think upper class, middle class, lower class, we tend to think in terms of money traditionally um, because money dictated what class you were. But now more than ever, that's changing, you guys. That's changing. Now a person's status is connected more than ever in American history to influence and followers, and your network. It's not just about your money. It's also about, like, whether you posted that selfie with that celebrity at that exclusive party. And you can gain traction in the world through your personal brand. 
And, and this is very much what Corinth was. This is our urban Western metric for success. And so here comes Paul riding to this little church. He's like, hey, family, listen, hey, remember who you were when God came to you and when he chose you. Hardly any of you were the influencers. Hardly any of you were networked. And hardly any of you were born into privilege. And then verse 27, he says, but God chose the foolish things. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Okay, so what does that mean, shaming? Uh, shaming the wise, shaming the strong. Uh, remember, this whole chunk of scripture, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 5, it's all about God's nonsense. Paul's getting our attention onto how nuts God's plan of salvation is according to human standards. From a purely human perspective, the way God has come, it is nonsense from the human perspective. The ultimate revelation of God is a crucified king, a publicly shamed, self-proclaimed king who died forgiving his killers. Are you kidding me, Paul? This is what we rally around. And, and the way that king is expanding his kingdom of love is through a diverse yet unified community of both men and women in a patriarchal society like Corinth. It's like, and Paul's like, yep. In this family, success is not defined by the usual human categories of wealth and status and influence, physical beauty, education, or anything like that, whether you live in Point Loma or Tijuana. Those are human categories that God is putting to shame through the love of the church. So put it this way, in the new family of Jesus, the church, success is defined as dependence on Jesus' death and resurrection for forgiveness and healing, and then growing in sacrificial love for God and other people. Very different definition from the world that gave us our, our worldviews. So you guys, it's really important for us to understand how countercultural the church was for its time. So if you're an ancient Greek person, you walk into a church gathering in the first century, you're shocked to see like men and women equally learning together. Absolutely scandalous. Men and women together in the same room, on the same ground, and you'd be like rubbing your eyes as you watched a few wealthy people like pouring wine and celebrating the Eucharist with ex-slaves. And we have this amazing letter, actually, this, this other letter written 100 years after Paul's. Uh, it's called the Epistle to Diognetus, I think is how you pronounce it. We don't know who wrote it, uh, but it's all about how bizarre the church was. <laughs> and he's like sending a letter to this, this non-Christian about how bizarre the church is. And I'm just going to read a paragraph from it. It'll be on the screen. He says, For the Christians are distinguished from other people neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. Every foreign land to them is as their native country. And every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. That's good. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. He goes on. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people and are per persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They're poor, yet make many rich. 
They lack all things, yet abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they're glorified. They're spoken evil of, and yet are justified. And then finally, he says, they're reviled and blessed. They're insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They're assailed by the Jews and persecuted by the Greeks. I love this. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. Park Hill Church, this is who we're called to be in the world. This is why God's nonsense turns the tables on all the world's definitions of status and success. This is, this is why the foolishness of God, that's us, turns the tables and shames the wisdom of the world. Sum it up this way. The gospel of the crucified and risen King Jesus cuts across all cultures and classes that him, humans typically divide into. And it creates a radically diverse community that's united around Jesus and empowered to bring the nonsensical, attractively self-sacrificial love of God into the world. So you guys, brothers and sisters, to use Paul's language, brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are chosen by God to be part of this thing. You are pursued by God in love and then empowered by him in the spirit to be part of this intimate family that spins all of the world's greatest arguments back onto the world, all while loving sacrificially. This is who we're called to be. Regardless of how educated you think you are or what job you have or how connected you are or what neighborhood you live in, which is funny how we tend to pride ourselves on where we live, even in a place where you can drive 10 minutes and go 10 miles, or how much money you have, or how self-confident you might feel. It doesn't matter. Through dependence on Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, God wants to redeem the world through you, and he is. God is redeeming the world through you, through us, the new family of Jesus. Look at verse 28 and 29. Paul goes on. He says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So as Jesus followers, God's chosen you for this thing, okay? Where the arrogant are gonna be brought low and the humble are lifted high and God wants to empower you for this work. No matter all of your worldly measures of success, and so the simple call today, you guys, it's a simple call, is to step into a posture of dependence on God. Open-handed, empty-handed, and our hands outstretched to Jesus. That's the call. Open, empty hands. Release the things that divide us. Release the things that make us fight over, wanna, over ideology or whatever. And unite around the gospel. But it takes this open-handed posture, especially for Americans, because we have so much in our hands. We open our hands, and, and there's still so much stuff in it. We clench back up. Uh, our problem as Americans, we often have so much at our fingertips that our, our hands are rarely empty. And so we live with this illusion of independence. 
which keeps us disconnected from God's power. And this is really important to talk about in San Diego in 2020, the eighth most expensive city you know, to live in in America, so much wealthier. Uh, it's an environment of excess and pleasure, which is not the type of environment Christianity has historically thrived in. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg says it this way. He says, of course, it's possible to be rich and a Christian, but frequently at the times the church has been least compromised with culture and politics, the majority of believers have not come from the upper classes of the world. For it is precisely the well-to-do who are often likely not to sense any need for God because they believe they can buy or manipulate their way into meeting all their own needs. So maybe at this point, I don't know how many minutes I am in, maybe, maybe 15 minutes into this talk, there's an elephant in the room. Craig Blomberg is poking it. Uh, but let, let's talk about it. So we're here, 2020 San Diego, reading a verse from Paul where he says, hey guys, don't get cocky. Remember who you came from, underprivileged, uneducated, unnetworked. Remember where you came from, you guys. And yet we are here reading this as insanely privileged, educated, networked people compared to the rest of the planet. So I, I, have, to, I have to confess, I have a problem. I have a problem with the Bible. Because I come to the Bible, and the Bible, for the most part, in verses like this, for the most part, are written from the perspective of the poor, and the oppressed, and the enslaved, and the conquered. And yet here I am, a modern American citizen of a superpower born among the conquerors, and I'm trying to read the Bible like it's just talking to me. Now, don't get me wrong, the scriptures absolutely are God's word to me and for me, essential for my life today, but I have to humble myself, I have to humble, work hard to read the Bible right. When Paul says God chooses the insignificant of the world to shame the big shots, or when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, how do you receive that? How do you receive that? Well, it depends who you are, right? Like, I'm way less like the Galilean peasant hearing Jesus preach, blessed are the meek. And I'm way more like a Roman in his villa, really suspicious of this Jesus guy. And I need to be honest about that. I can absolutely receive the gospel. I can receive and be transformed by this nonsensical gospel that is good news because it is good news for everyone. But first... I need to admit the gospel's radical nature and not try to tame it to endorse my entitlement. So what does the gospel ask of me? 38-year-old, white, fairly well-off, by all standards, all relatively speaking. What does the gospel ask of me? Does it, does it ask voluntary poverty? Like, not necessarily, but maybe. Some, Yes but not necessarily voluntary poverty. But the gospel absolutely demands of me a deep humility that is demonstrated by hospitality and generosity. At cost to me. For me personally, this means I, Evan, have to realize there's nothing necessarily wrong with me being a relatively well-off white American male, 
but I better be humble <laughs> and I better be hospitable and I'd better be generous or I am missing the kingdom. I am missing being a part of this God's foolishness shaming the world's wisdom movement. I need to empty my hands in humility and generosity. I'm not just talking about in, in the church or in a gathering, but in all of my life and my posture towards people that I live with day to day. Open my hands in humility and generosity and stretch them out in dependence on God so he can fill me with power that transforms me into Jesus' likeness truly and transforms the world around me. So this is why we're calling the, this whole church to participate in the week of prayer and fasting. It's exactly why. Um, seven is coming up next month, a citywide week of prayer and fasting. Uh, Sunday, the 22nd of March through the 28th, Park Hill will be joining dozens of other churches for this. We're setting aside our time sacrificially uh, one of the churches that's participating had this great idea of even uh, having all of their communities fast from normal community night to go to whatever church is gathering to fast and pray the night they normally meet for community. So we're setting aside time and food, just like Jesus did. We'll fast and pray in a posture of dependence so we can feel our mortality and say like Jesus did, Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done in San Diego as it is in heaven through me. So for one rare week, we're going to collectively empty our hands and our stomachs, obviously. Fully aware of our need for God as fragile, mortal, dependent creatures who are loved. Just return. All we have at that point is <laughs> when you're five days into a seven-day fast, all you have is your identity as loved. And the goal is to pray for power and vision and that God would awaken us to his plan for our church and our city and for each of us as his kids. God wants to unleash his power through you. Every single one of us in this room, and he's looking for hearts that are dependent on his goodness and willing to submit to his authority. Not boastfully, not like boastfully independent or ignoring prayer, or ignoring the scriptures, or ignoring confession of sin, but a heart that's leaning in, hungry for more of God's work in their life. So this is Paul's heart. This is why he builds up the whole first chapter to this call. He's like, hey church, don't lose sight of the cross. The cross gives us all our cues. The cross forms us, and now God is longing to reveal that same humble, self-sacrificial power through a church that's totally dependent on him. There is zero room for arrogance here. There is zero room for entitlement in this family. There's just too much to do for the kingdom. There's too much. And Paul finishes the chapter on a high note. He closes out saying, it's because of him <laughs> that you're in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So Paul reminds this precious little church, uh, 10 times smaller than this room right here, he's like, hey, it's because of God that you're even here. It's because of God that you are in relationship with him. It, your life in God is gift. Your relationship with the living God is a gift he gave you. Your status is loved, it's gift. Keep your eyes on the cross, the source of the gift, where Jesus gave up everything so that you and I might receive it. It's because of his grace 
This is why we value beginning every prayer gathering with gratitude. That's why most of the time on Sunday mornings, the first song out of the gate is a song about what he's done and our grateful response, gratitude. It's because of him that we get to be part of his life, okay? It's because of him. And that phrase, in Christ, it's because of him that we're in Christ. Gosh, not only is that central to Paul's writings, 150 times does Paul say the phrase, in Christ, or we are in him. But that phrase, that idea of being united with Christ, it is the very heart of what it means to be saved. Union with Christ, deep, intertwined relationship with God. This is the ultimate gift God wants to give every one of us, the gift of himself to you. So I just wanna ask if there's anyone in this room who's never come to Christ, I would ask you and invite you to step into the kingdom through faith because when you do, you receive an intimate connection to the triune God. God has always been a relationship, Father, Son, Spirit, in deep love with one another, self-givingly, forever. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you are brought into that eternal family and given belonging. And what does that look like? It looks like the nonsense of God. It looks like this church that is brought into unity despite differences. It's this family that God is creating. Or in Jesus' language, it's this abiding in him that God gives you as a gift. And so the invitation to be saved is an invitation ultimately to relationship, to belonging. We often talk about, hey, come to Christ and he'll forgive you of sins. And that's absolutely true. All of us need forgiveness. But uh, there's an aspect we often, we often overlook, and it's that we are all lost and incapable of arriving at our full potential or even a sense of belonging. And in Christ, God offers eternal family and belonging, regardless of marital status, singleness, regardless of whether your father or mother have abandoned you, you are offered belonging and eternal intimacy in this nonsensical arrangement called the church. This is why we push communities as hard as we do at this church. It takes years for a Tuesday night community group <laughs> to feel like family and to start embodying this kind of love. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is the goal. The way I love saying it is salvation, slide 13, salvation is sharing in the Son's relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit. That's the gift that we have. God looks at Jesus, God looks at us, and he sees union. The same love the Father has for Jesus, he has for you. This is why we can sing like we're going to after this talk. We're gonna sing, I, I am chosen. I am who you say I am, Jesus. So after this huge chapter, all about our calling and warning against division, begging for unity and the nonsense of the cross, Paul builds up to this powerful moment where he simply says, all of this is possible, not because of who you are, not because of what you've accomplished or how much you've done or what you've left undone or how much bad you've done. None of that. This is because God pursued you first and God is lovingly pursuing you now. Our union with God and the blessings that come with it, it's all because God came down the mountain to us. 
And now everything we do in response, everything we do in worship, all our righteous acts, all our social justice, our holy living, all of that, it's made possible by the power of his Holy Spirit working through us. Which is why Paul ends, he finishes with a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's zero room for arrogance in this family. All of our worth and your loved identity as a son or daughter, it's a gift. So there's no room for bragging or boasting. But if we're honest, as, as we start to land the plane, if we're honest, often our arrogance doesn't take the form of like outright boasting. Most of us are, most of us are socially aware enough to know that bragging looks ugly, right? Um, arrogance, this, this boasting, it often shows up as insecurity and fear of insignificance. And that's the same thing. It's the negative version of boasting. Often we're too smart to do the positive and just brag outright, although we do a lot. I think more often it's this gnawing sense and fear of being insignificant. So I just want to, um, this including myself, so in a spirit of transparency, uh, none of us are beyond this, and so I just want to throw my hat into the game here. Uh, part of my spiritual growth process has involved an ongoing struggle with deep identity issues and deep insecurity. I mean, like imagine being a musician you have, you have a couple worship records out. I have some worship records out, and I write some songs, and my little brother is Phil Wickham. <laughs> so imagine that's, that's your, your hand you're dealt, or whatever. Okay? So I've shared this story before, but it's been a while since I've shared it, and it's exactly what Paul's getting at. Negative boasting shows up just as much and it's just as harmful and toxic to us and it's insecurity and fear of insignificance. So I distinctly remember, here's, here's what I did. I remember going, you know, going to seminary, making the decision, I'm gonna go get educated. Um, my heart was a mixed bag on that. I really wanted to study the scriptures, loved it. I wanted to be trained for ministry. Great motivation, right? Um, but I also, in there somewhere, didn't know how to separate it, I wanted to go to seminary, so since I wouldn't be the musical brother, I was gonna go be the educated brother. And a lot of this comes from family of origin in a lot of us. And we're gonna talk about that in our communities. How was success defined in your place of upbringing? What was celebrated? And how do you import that stuff into your current motives? So for me, there was a part of me that was operating out of a deep insecurity that needed to be confessed. I just didn't know how. I remember coming back from taking my GRE, the exam that helps you get into grad school, and, uh, and I was late. I was told that if I was late, I'd miss it, and I'd never be able to take it again for months, and I'd miss the next semester or whatever. And, and I was just bent out of shape. I remember finding out I was late, and then driving home with all my test prep, and documents, and my wife's like, oh, you're back early. And I was like, and I didn't even, I didn't even 
respond verbally. I just like let out some kind of guttural animalistic scream and I just threw my documents across the backyard and like stomped up to my bedroom. <laughs> I'm like 32 years old, okay? <laughs> so, and, and it was, it, was at, it was right around that moment I realized I, I had issues. <laughs> and they needed, they needed a place, they needed a place. They needed a place to go. They needed a community to work through it. They needed an authentic vent out of me in front of a spirit-filled family, a community of love that's in relationship with the Trinity where the nonsense of the cross can overturn where I've bought into the lie of worldly metrics for status. Yeah. And the only place that happens is in the spirit-filled community of Jesus. And so I went to the elders, some of which I found out are here at the gathering, either at the eighth, well, one is there, and then the elders that sent us from Portland are here today, uh, a couple of them, and I went to them, and I confessed this and just started verbalizing it. They're like, wow, yeah, let's, let's help you get a handle on that. God wants to work through you. You got a church to plant in San Diego in a couple years. Let's, let's get a handle on this together. This is how the triune community of Jesus is a community of transformation for you. This is what Jesus wants to do with all of your and my twisted definitions of success and identity issues. Because there's no boasting in this family. We see bragging online, when, and we can be like, oh, that's so boastful. But what we don't see is the insecurity and fear of insignificance in us. And we need a family that can help us through that. So as the loved, spirit-filled family united to Jesus, zero room for pride, whether it's like, I'm awesome and I'm better, or I'm worthless, and they're both equally toxic for you. So Paul ends the chapter on a high note. It's beautiful. As Jesus followers, there's no room for boasting, but then he, he does a wordplay. But there is plenty of room for boasting in God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, he says. This is why we gather around the table and around one another at community and around the scriptures and sing. This is why we sing. This is why Tanika's like, okay, open your mouth today. I loved it. She's like, open your mouths and basically begin bragging on God now. Like David in the psalm said, okay, soul, I'm telling you, soul, bless the Lord, soul. Let all that is within me bless his holy name, for he's done great things. And he desires to continue doing great things in me. So Paul finishes this, don't divide, let's unite, and don't mess your definitions of success up with the world's definition. Just, just whatever you do, may your whole life be a brag on God. And may your whole life bring attention to how he saved you. And you can be, I, I, I talked with a mentor this week. I'm like, what's the fine line between bragging in your accomplishments for the kingdom and bragging on God doing those things through you? Like, how do you differentiate? Because sometimes I can't tell the difference. And he's like, well, uh, it is you know, very similar to Michael Jordan. I remember him seeing, shooting a half-court shot at the buzzer, one of his many half-court shots at the buzzer. And, and, he, and, and this, one, this one specific episode, he, he was just like, I did that. I can't believe I did that. And like the team hoisted hoist him up and he like pointed to the team. He's like, I, I can't believe I did that. That happened. That happened. And there was not a shred. Nobody saw a shred of arrogance there. 
And it's very similar to when God empowers us and lifts us up to actually like, I, I can't believe last week, it wasn't because of me, my preaching, it wasn't because of the worship, it wasn't because of anyone, but 14 people got baptized last Sunday or whatever. And you can be like, look what God did in us. Look what God did through us. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is bragworthy. Let's boast in the Lord and let's repeat back to him and reflect back to him how good and worthy he is because it's because of him I'm even here. It's because of him I'm even part of this. And so, so Paul quotes from Jeremiah, and here's the whole chunk Paul quotes from to close. He says, this is what the Lord says. This is the prophet Jeremiah. He says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me that I'm the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So we're gonna do exactly that. We're gonna continue singing. The application for this sermon is very simple. It's very simple, are you ready? If, if you're boasting because you've bought into worldly metrics, metrics of success, Repent, be, bring yourself low at the cross. Repent, confess. If you're feeling worthless and insignificant and you're afraid of uh, not mattering or whatever, you're, you're also buying into the world's definition of success because God has told you that you are loved and he has empowered you for his service. So come up to the cross. <laughs> Look up to the cross. And all of us, all of us, Let's respond by boasting in Jesus, by worshiping him, by commanding our soul. We're going to sing two songs before we come to the table. These two songs are us commanding our souls to boast in what God has done. Okay, uh, hopefully you're with me on that. That's what we're going to do. We're going to follow Paul in this. We're going to boast in the goodness of Jesus and worship him and watch what he does among us. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you for being everything we needed, and for coming to us and bringing us into your family. Lord, may all our identity issues and all of our insecurities and all of our arrogance, may it all crumble at your feet right now as we confess our dependence on you with open and empty hands. Lord, you gave us our hands and you gave us everything in them. Take it back. Receive what you desire. We praise you, Lord.